Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Hey, thanks for checking out the Product Design Podcast. Today we have Kelsey Houghton. She is the CPO of Fanata. And Kelsey, we are super glad to have you here. Why don't you give us a little background on who you are, what you do, and your role? Thank you, Seth. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today as well. My name is Kelsey. I am the Chief Product Officer at Fanata. We are a fintech startup that builds software to help financial institutions increase revenue while simultaneously improving the financial health of their customers. So we're really looking to design products to create a mutually empowering relationship between banks and their customers instead of reinforcing that traditional predatory model where banks make money when customers mess up. And as the CPO, I'm responsible for setting the vision and leading the strategy as well as the execution of our product portfolio. But we are a seed round startup, so I'm still wearing a lot of hats, meaning not only am I on that executive leadership team, but for the time being, I'm definitely in the trenches and very closely involved with the day-to-day product development and design, including some user research and QA and things like that. Wow, that sounds really exciting. Maybe you can take us back and just explain how you got started in the first place in the whole tech scene. Yeah, so I think like a lot of people in product, I had a very roundabout way of getting here and ending up in this career. There really is no single path. But for me, I was a sociology major at a small liberal arts school in Washington called Whitman and had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I just really enjoyed that major. And kind of by chance, I actually started my career in project management. So I actually still have an active PMP certification. And I started working for companies first as a project assistant and then working my way up to a professional in various industries, including I started in nonprofits and then medical devices and then government software and then which eventually went into payments and fintech. But I will say I quickly realized that career in project kind of sucked the life out of me just because for me, I felt like it lacked creativity or like that excitement of creating something new for the world. But the interesting thing was I was working really closely on projects that had really exciting products. So for example, I worked on the global release of the Apple Watch Series 5 when I was a project manager at a medical device consulting firm because that was considered a medical device in many countries around the world. A similar story with Microsoft and Amazon products that I helped launch. So I was working closely with those product teams and those engineering teams and kind of just knew, I think, deep down in my heart that that was more interesting to me than like implementations, for example. Yeah, I think it would be really helpful if maybe you can give us a little bit of like T-chart explanation on like some of the difference between like product management or, or running product versus project management. Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about it is a project has a very clearly defined beginning and end. So you could have a product, for example, and the project could be like I just mentioned the global release of that. So just making sure you're implementing it or releasing that out into the world, which begins and ends. Whereas product, as I think we probably all know, listeners probably know, is something that we're continuously iterating on and doesn't necessarily have an end unless you decide to like sunset it at some point. So 
for a project, beginning and end is, is I think, the best way to think about that. Very cool. And what are some of the differences in like the day-to-day tasks for like a product owner versus a project manager? So for a project manager, you really are trying to organize whatever the beginning and the end is of that project, which could be me managing your team, managing risk, managing communications with stakeholders, managing quality and things like that, and making sure that everybody is rowing the boat in the same direction to get to whatever that end is that you've defined. For a product owner, which I also think is a little different from a product manager, it's really more about prioritizing features and prioritizing the backlog in order to make sure that the team is focusing on the development that is needed. It's interesting because for projects, there might be development needed for that project, but that development of the product within itself is not necessarily the end goal. It could be the implementation for a client or the overall release of it. And it's different in every single company, which is why it can be hard to speak to. Yeah. If you get to project management, which could be a step further than a product owner, you're doing things more like setting the long-term vision for the product, the strategy for it. You're probably needing to be very aware of what is going on within your business, what your customers wants, what your users want. But again, the definitions, because this is kind of a new field in a lot of ways, they tend to mesh and, and meld between companies. So sometimes it is kind of hard to speak to without a specific example. Yeah, yeah. The way that I've always thought of it is like, the product owner, product manager sets the like strategy. They're kind of like the mini CEO of yeah. a particular thing. And then the project manager just basically helps execute on that vision or those priorities and, you know, helps schedule and line things up, make sure the ship is running smoothly, make, make sure everything gets executed on that the product owner set forth from their vision. But yeah, yeah exactly. Definitely lots of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of lots of different definitions and hats across different orgs. Maybe you can take us back a little bit to that space where you were coming out of college and you first got your first job. You said you started out as a researcher out of college. And like, yeah, how did you how did you get that? Because I think a lot of people, the biggest hurdle is kind of getting that first job and that first gig that kind of leads them to things. So how did that transpire? Of course. So I was a sociology major and we had a lot of focus on like qualitative and quantitative research, which has become very much in handy when you think about user research. But my first job out of college was actually through AmeriCorps Vista. I worked at a nonprofit in Pike Place Market in Seattle. So Pike Place Market Foundation was what it was called. And I was a full-time researcher basically doing research to figure out what the community needed in terms of like social service programs that we could offer because the market has like a preschool and a health clinic and a food bank and a senior center and all of these things in place, but they were struggling to figure out what their community actually needed because, I mean, a lot of people don't know there are actually apartments there for low-income artists or low-income seniors. And so there's a community living there that actually just needed these social services. So I was a full-time researcher. I employed like a group of five interns that were at UW. I had no idea I was going to go into tech at that time. I thought I wanted to go into nonprofits. So that was the beginning. To be honest with you, I found it really hard to, to live on that salary, but I still wanted to do things that really made a difference in the world. So I found a job at a medical advice consulting company 
consulting people who were making really cutting edge medical devices that helped the world in Austin, Texas. So I moved to Austin, found a job as a project assistant. Didn't even really know what that meant at that time. And just <laughs> worked my way up to a coordinator and then to a project manager, got my PMP, became professional in that area, and then moved into more specific tech jobs from there. Because when I was working at that consulting firm, I was, like I said, meant working with Apple, Amazon, Microsoft on launching their products, but also consulting them through the re- regulatory issues they need to take into consideration and like the testing in terms of making sure their products were safe and effective. Yeah, very cool. So like, you know, looking back over the different job changes and, you know, strategic decisions you've made, is there anything you look back and you say like, I did this really well here. This was awesome. I didn't even really know what I was doing. And I ended up this kind of like fell into my lap or this was a really good decision or conversely anything that you say like, oh, if only I had known this when I was in college, I would have been like so much further ahead or anything like that. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is like, I've never actually applied for a product job or I actually have before I had experience and never got a job through that means I was rejected. So the funny thing is, is I feel like I spent like the first seven years of my career in a career that I didn't really love. So I would say I was a good project manager for sure, but I wasn't a great one. And that's because I just didn't like truly didn't have that passion within my heart, even though I loved the companies I worked for. I loved my colleagues. And so it was kind of like by luck that I ended up in product because at my next job after the consulting one, there was just an urgent need to be filled. The product person moved off the project I was assigned to. So I kind of unofficially became, I would say like a product owner there. And I remember we had like a Udemy for business description and I would just ingest hundreds of hours of product content to try to figure out what to do because I didn't have any formal coaching. My manager was in the project team and things like that. So I would say the thing I did right was just just saying yes to things that scared me, figuring out what I liked and then self-teaching off the job quite a bit and on the job, but just really diving into it on my own to see where I could go from there. The thing I would say I did wrong was letting myself sit in a career I didn't love for so long. Like I really wish I had kind of figured out what I wanted before then and moved to products sooner because that is where my passion lies. But I think I just didn't know where my passion lied. So it's kind of hard to say wrong. It's just like I had to kind of go through some luck and some chance to end up where I did. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great advice. I think a lot of people, whether they're applying for jobs or whether they have like an opportunity for a new role or whatever, I think a lot of people have this weird notion of like, if I don't meet every single criteria required, then I should not apply for it or I should not throw my hat in the ring. And I think that's probably like carryover from like everything we've been ingrained from school where you have to like come prepared for the test. You can't like do any research while you're taking the test. It's just like whatever's in your head, you have to know it. But I would say that probably the best things that have happened to me career-wise have been because I've taken on things I didn't know how to do that I was able to figure out how to do, you know, during the job. Um, And I, all those things, like if it's something scary to you, but you think that it could help propel your career or help give you like a new interesting experience. I think you should always take that. 
And that kind of urgency puts a fire under you to learn and to like get really good at something new or learn it, learn if you like it, learn if you don't like it. But I would say one piece of advice I always give is to not shy away from things that you might not immediately know how to do. For sure. And I actually think this would be a really good time to tell the story of how I ended up where I am now. Yeah, Uh, please do. Unique, but I also think it's something that other people could learn from. So I just talked about my last job where I was kind of dabbling in product management and design and just doing all these Udemy courses and kind of unofficially doing it at my last job. But I was like, I was not passionate about the product I was working on. And so I was thinking, well, how can I get my foot in the door? I also really was curious about working for a smaller startup. So I heard Fanata's founder, Parker Graham, on a podcast about personal finance. And I'm like a personal finance fanatic. So that just really excited me knowing about his mission and the product he was working on at the time, which has completely changed and transformed since then. It was four years ago. And I just reached out cold on LinkedIn and said, hey, can I help you start your business? Because it was just him and and two other guys at that time. And he... He, in retrospect, didn't know what he was doing either, but just had this really good idea. And now he has come so far, but he was just like, yeah, yeah, come on, just do whatever. And I did all kinds of things ranging from like marketing and SEO to trying to implement processes for the dev team. Like we were trying to get into an agile landscape because I was certified in that. And then over time, kind of eventually fell into a product leadership role. But I did it part-time for a while because we just didn't have the funding. And then eventually we did. We got a very hefty (laughs) seed round investment and I got to move over over full-time and just work my passion 24-7. So That's awesome. Yeah. So you just, and I think another good takeaway is that like you just randomly reached out to someone, kind of used a, I wouldn't say a backdoor, but like a non-traditional door to get your foot in the door. And... Yeah. Was that something you did a lot or was this like a unique situation? I like had a streak of motivation for one week and I reached out to like 10 founders and one wrote back and that was Parker. Wow. Uh, And the funny thing is like, I think when I started realizing product was my passion, but I wasn't getting that full time at the current job I was in, I did apply to three or four jobs and just got totally turned down because I didn't have the experience. But now I've gone through the process of starting this company from scratch and building this product literally from scratch, pivoting it, doing all the user research, like proving that there is a market for it and selling it now and like seeing it change people's lives. So I don't actually have a traditional background in product at all, but I have gone through that from beginning to end because of that message that I sent on LinkedIn. And he's the only person who wrote back. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those life altering moments where it like changes the trajectory of your career. That's really, really cool. I can't say enough about those types of strategies to just like, it's like, you never know. It's like, what's the worst that could happen if you reach out to someone or it's like, maybe you apply for a job. It's like, why not just send a note to the design team manager, the project manager, the CEO, and just like, I don't know, see what happens. Not many other people are going to do that. And you can kind of like, I don't know. Again, I think it's, it's people kind of think there's like this rule book for how you have to go about things, but it's like, get yourself noticed somehow, do something in a a little non-traditional way. Yeah. Like I said, like nine founders completely ignored me and that was the worst that could happen. And I don't even remember who they were. Like, I don't even remember the companies. So like in retrospect, that's not a big deal, you know? Exactly. (laughs) So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, 
I have people who reach out to me randomly on LinkedIn and some of them have really thought out messages and a really clear thing of like what they're asking for, what they want. Some people are just more vague and not really like personalized or anything. And it's like, yeah, I think if you take a little bit of time to like present what you can offer or what you want to do, that can really go a long way and it can get you in places that you would have never been able to get to otherwise just by showing that like hustle and that initiative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thinking about the whole area of like banking and finance and apps, I know that we had talked about there being a bit of a gray area of like design ethics and dark patterns and things like that. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about like some of the design ethics conversations that you have to be thinking through as a product person navigating these waters of business value versus like ethical good design and things like that. Sure. Yeah. So I think as product people, regardless of your role in product, we do have a lot of responsibility when it comes to creating a space where we're making these ethical decisions in our day-to-day work. And I know Having worked at multiple companies where technology moves really, really fast, sometimes it's hard to take a step back and think about each decision. But any decision a PM or designer, et cetera, makes, I really think can have great impact on the user down the line. And I think that's really pertinent in fintech because a lot of times personal finances and real money are involved. And then a lot of times that's with people who maybe don't have necessarily the exposure, education, or resources to quite understand what things mean. So they tend to put trust in your product. And it really touches uh, a lot of important parts of people's lives. So if you're thinking about like digital ethics and behavioral design, and you're thinking about a product like ours, which to give some background information and some detail, we do have a personalized recommendation engine that is basically designed to help people no matter where they are on their financial journey, figure out what to do right with their money. So that could be building an emergency fund. It could be paying off debt and using strategies to do that more quickly, but also to save thousands of dollars on interest. And then as they get further along on their journey, it could be building wealth through relatively low risk proven strategies with kind of a long-term goal. So that, that does mean that real money is involved. But we're also a business. So we have to solve this user's problems or help them along their journey in a way that is viable for our business and for our clients, which for us can be banks or credit unions. So we're B to B to C. So I guess in that sense, you are satisfying divergent priorities, which I think is really common no matter what industry you're in. And in our case, from the very beginning, we're really trying to design ours so that these priorities align. And so these banks and credit unions are growing together without doing it at the expense of their customers. And so we're trying to find ways where we can help customers and save them money while also creating revenue for the banks and credit unions and really convincing our clients that having good financial wherewithal for the customers is actually in their best interest because we're now in an environment where traditional banks and credit unions for the first time are competing with big tech and neobanks and fintech companies And tech has set the standard for the digital experiences that our consumers have come to expect and to demand, essentially. And then also trying to think about ways to make it so that by increasing their customers' financial health without actually being predatory towards them, 
it's actually better because we can find someone early in their journey that's living paycheck to paycheck, help them save up through, through our product, have them tell us they are saving for a house down payment, for example, get them there, and then be able to target a recommendation to have a mortgage with the bank. So we're really trying to find those places where the priorities intersect. Yeah. That being said, it's a huge, I mean, it real money is involved. So you really have to think about every decision you're making in the product and, and think about, is this going to put the user in any harm? Yeah. Cause there's like obvious, you know, dark patterns, right. That like, I'm sure we've all seen, and there's like little examples where it's like, if you want to cancel a subscription and then like the cancel button is like grayed out and like down far bottom of the screen and just like 10 pixels big. Like those are kind of like just silly examples, but also like to be fair, a big gray area of design ethics where it's like, yeah, you don't want people to cancel your, your subscription, but you also don't want to like make it impossible to find. I think if we go back to like the AOL days when someone tried to cancel their AOL subscription and they had to talk to like 10 people on the phone and then have like an hour conversation and, and talk to all these reasons why. But yeah, you know, everything to like more significant things, like if you're going to be depositing money into something that you feel like you should trust, like how do you communicate that? Everything from like the labels to the calls to action to like the expected return to the disclaimers are all like, I'm sure lots of micro decisions on on the ethics of everything. I've heard of a good way to think of it that I really liked once, which is if you revealed how your product worked to your customers and your end users, would you be embarrassed about that? Or would they be upset to take that even a step further? And maybe in some industries, there's a little more leeway, but I really take ours seriously. We try to have a culture with company values where we're really thinking about the user first, but also trying to find strategies and business models to make sure that that's generating revenue for our clients. So we have company values, for example, that are like transparency, lead with love, accountability, or hope that our products will create a better world for tomorrow, which they won't if we're screwing people over. And if you took like a cultural mantra, that's just a couple of words, I think innovate with care is a really good one that we like to think about in our decisions. Yeah. So if the bank's going to make money, but the user is going to be screwed. That's the complete opposite of why this product exists in the first place. Like the banks, our clients are aware wherewithal to do what we want to do, but it's not the reason our company started. What would you say might be some good ways to navigate design ethics? If maybe your boss or your you know project manager or whoever wants you to do something that's maybe in that, like an the ethical gray area of design like you as a product person maybe you have an initiative or you as a product designer have a task what are some like good soft skill ways that you could you know push back on these things to bring that to the attention of maybe we shouldn't do this yeah it's interesting because every company is different and every company's motivations are different and industry and the people that you have to deal with so I am lucky in that I'm in one where we really care about this, but I think probably a good soft skill would be, first of all, to be able to point back to your, to your company's values. Cause a lot of time they really, they sound really, really good, but people aren't adhering to them. So if you're at a company that has values you believe in, but your company's not adhering to them and basically brushes that away as if it doesn't matter, then you probably might want to think about moving companies. But that's a little extreme. I think other things you can do is really just build out a case for not thinking about what is the first chain reaction that can happen when you do this, but 
what could happen down the line and, and what could be the worst case scenario for the person. So an example I can think for our product is our clients are really interested in having us convert products called personal loans. And that can be really useful from like an advanced personal finance perspective. So for example, we could see a user with really high interest rates. And what we would do is try to get them to take out a personal loan with a much lower interest rate, pay that one off like at full, and then save thousands of dollars over time because they now have a lowest a lower interest rate if the math works out. Yep. But obviously the risk to that is if the user doesn't understand because our product isn't designed correctly to help them understand this and they take out a second loan and now they have double <laughs> the debt, like that is the worst case scenario. They're going to be crippled. That's a really extreme scenario, but just making sure that your manager or whoever it is that is pushing back against you actually understands what that worst case scenario is because maybe they just haven't thought of it. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I like the idea of like... If you think about it in long-term gain and value versus short-term gain, because like there's, yeah, sure. There's like a ton of ways that you could probably get like a short-term gain out of like a dark pattern, but yeah. people are going to probably not be your customer in the long-term or they're going to like not recommend you in the long-term. And I think one way that you could hedge yourself against this is just reinforcing the long play for wherever you're working that you want to you know, ensure the growth and success over the long term rather than just prioritizing the short term, which, I th yeah. yeah, I think that could be an interesting pitch. I think like it is possible that whoever is pushing against this just doesn't see the full picture. And it's one reason yeah. I think like diversity of thought is really important. I, I love giving Robinhood as an example for things like this, but they've had some pretty detrimental effects from some certain decisions that were made with their product. And one I think was a front end design decision to basically show these everyday users, which I mean, they wanted to like democratize access to trading to show them on the front end, the same thing someone working on Wall Street with all this financial expertise would see and assuming they're understanding that. And maybe the people who designed that came from a finance background and just did not realize that it wasn't so obvious to every single person that might see that. So just little things like that, really think trying to get competing ideas and opinions and just diversity of thought in your design, I think is really crucial too. Yeah, that's a good point on thinking about diversity of thought. Now, when you say that, do you think it's valuable to just kind of have like different roles in the strategy decision-making processes? Do you think that's part of like getting, getting lots of, you know, user interviews from many different personas and backgrounds or Maybe maybe unfold that a little bit, what your uh, thought behind that is. Yeah, I would think both. I would think having multiple people in on a decision, it doesn't necessarily have to be hierarchical, but people that come from multiple backgrounds on your product team, be it gender, race, socioeconomic background, all that, like that's actually proven to be better off for users, but also like financially that usually works out better, which we can get up into later if you want. But I also think user research is obviously a huge part of that. So if you know who's using your product, whether or not it's a target user, if they're using your product a lot, then you probably want to be able to get their voice and make sure that they're seeing the product the same way that you're seeing it if you're making a decision that could end up being a dark pattern. So yeah. not every decision is like that high stakes. But right, if it is right. one that is, then I mean, if real money is involved and uh, I would think that always is something you want to think through. So yeah. Well, to your point, I think I have conversations with my team daily about like 
product features or just things or like experiences. And it's very interesting how like, I mean, it's obvious, but different people interpret things differently. And something that seems very plain or benign or obvious to me could seem very unobvious to someone else or basically just have like a completely different point of view on if something is like the right approach or wrong approach. And not saying that every approach is the, you know, you have to go with the majority opinion or, or whatever, but it's just, it's very good to be able to think through these things from different perspectives that you wouldn't have just you know, from your experience. And that's something that's always really helpful and challenging to me to be like, okay, like someone might see this completely different and I need to be open and aware to that. Yeah. Actually, that makes me think of something, but using that user research to build your case, improve your case is really important. So a good story around this is our seed round investor gave us $3 million to develop a financial health score along with this recommendations engine. And we did this user research that proved pretty like right off the bat that people do not want to be scored by their bank again. They have negative connotations with credit scores, whether or not they understand this is a different thing. It just gives bad feelings. And so using that proof, that quantitative and that qualitative research and bringing that back to that stakeholder who may be the and decision maker and may have a lot of power. But just using that actual research to make your case can make a big change. We moved away from that completely because they understood because of the user research that we did. And they were like, wow, maybe the way we were looking at it as a bank is completely different from the way our customers are looking at it, (laughs) obviously. So what we ended up doing is like a little bit of gamification and making it more like you can earn points for healthy financial behavior. And these were things they wanted to do. They wanted to be able to earn badges for healthy financial behavior that was actually things that were good for them and didn't bring them bad feelings. Like as simple as that didn't bring them anxiety <laughs> of their bank scoring them. So, so, so the investor didn't ask for their money back. Oh no, they were, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were like, wow, thank you for figuring that out before we wasted 5 million building that in house, you know? So oh, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, really it, incredible. Yeah. Cause we're in an industry where like banks and credit unions, a lot of times have like legacy ways of doing things and a lots of regulation and process. So it's, we're, kind of almost acting like an agile wing for this investor because that's they probably would have just built that in-house and spent years doing it and it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's really cool. Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity in fintech. Maybe you can kind of give a little bit of an understanding of the landscape and like the positives and negatives of the industry from just like a product side and kind of just building products yeah. in fintech. Yeah. I mean, it's so complex right now and I don't want to go too deep into it, but what is essentially happening is because like I mentioned, there are all these external forces, like for example, social media, it has given us digital experiences where we've come to expect more from them. And then you see fintechs pop up like Venmo or PayPal, where money is moving instantly, instantly peer to peer. And then the pandemic happened and people stopped going into banks and it wasn't just millennials and Gen Z that were wanting these things, but all people were wanting to be able to build relationships with their banks digitally, like open an account with high API and no fees and the click of a button and all that. And these banks and credit unions who had really good business models and were basically 
the head of the landscape for so long all of a sudden have to transform digitally and compete with these with these other players, but they have way more regulation, way more process, legacy technology. And so right now, a big thing is partnering with Fintechs to, like I said, kind of act as that agile wing and bring that tech culture and knowledge into the bank. But so that that is the opportunity there. The hard part is working with legacy tech, legacy systems, <laughs> legacy mindset, understanding how everything works together. Like one bank could have like 10 or 11 different systems, their core system, something for mortgages, something for something else. And so if you really try to encompass all of it, that is a challenge that we are seeing for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So now is that like the integration side of like, you could design something awesome, but as soon as you want to get it working with the, with the bank or the partner, it's like, now you have a rat's nest of APIs exactly. to untangle. Yeah. yeah. And not just that, but like the business processes and the mindset of their employees who have done something the same way for so many years and maybe just see their team and not the big picture or maybe see the big picture, but it's just scary. And it, it's changed. And so there's that. And then there's even questions of, do we integrate with core systems? Do we partner with other fintechs? Like, and no one in the industry knows the answer or knows where it's going. So I can't answer that question. Yeah. But it's all these decisions you have to think way down the line and think how it's going to impact things eventually. So right now we're focusing more on the mobile experience and haven't gotten too much into that, but we are doing like money transfers and we're trying to do lending within that mobile experience and things like that, where we have to think about how all the systems interact. So, yeah. One thing that I just thought of that kind of goes back to the design ethics. I don't know if you have a take on this, but like what I'm thinking about is Plaid platform that allows you to, yeah, basically whenever you hook up your bank account to a service, Plaid is kind of like the ubiquitous, like go-to service that I see all the time where it comes up with like a little modal and it helps you log in to your bank account. But I think they just had like a big lawsuit or thing where I don't know if they were storing users login data on their own system to like expedite like the UX of it. I don't know what the case of it was, but maybe you can give a better explanation in what the dark pattern or not was going on. Yeah. So Plaid, one thing they do is they're an aggregator as part of this movement called open banking. And open banking is really exciting in that it empowers users to benefit from their own data for the first time. So for example, like in the past, if you're doing something with a bank, whatever you're doing, that bank only has that data to themselves. The banks don't know what's going on elsewhere and neither do you. So like they can raise their rates and like you're not necessarily aware of how that's competing. A lot of people don't have a full view of their finances. So like Mint uses open open finance and open banking to, for example, aggregate all accounts into one place in order for someone to actually understand their financial picture, maybe for the first time, depending who that person is. We do that too with our product. So it's exciting in that sense. It's scary in the sense that I think we can kind of think about how like Facebook meta or other social media companies have misused data in ways before or things like that have happened. It's scary in the sense that people are giving their consent to have this data shared among all these fintechs and banks and companies like that. But I think the issue of informed consent is really interesting because a lot of times people don't know what they're doing with it. And with Plaid, I don't, I don't remember or know the details. So maybe they did lie about something, but maybe it was just in the fine print. Uh, right. So I think the dark pattern there is getting people to link accounts, which we do with our product. 
but do they understand what's happening with that data? And I could say, I'll be the first to say, like, I'm super into personal finance. I use Mint. I use these things. I didn't really know what was happening with my data. I just knew that I liked the payoff I was getting when I started right. using products. So if we have users who uh, are really like underbanked or, I don't know, just not exposed to knowledge in these areas yet and don't really understand what's happening, is that truly informed consent when they, right. when they link? And it's a hard issue. Like, it's not one I've solved, but we use it. <laughs> so, like, it's something we have to continuously think about as an industry. Like, what are the best practices around it? Actually, hopefully some regulation comes out with some best practices so that if there are bad actors, they have to do things a certain way. But we're at least trying to do things the right way while at the same time trying to launch a company. So that is always a competing thing to think about. Yeah, it's really interesting within UX, like, making the user experience easier and more seamless often means simplifying things, right? So it's like simplifying the terms and conditions, simplifying the like onboarding process. But like lots of times there's things that are users probably wouldn't want to agree to if they knew plainly what it was. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, but it's always that tension of like how much information is reasonable and ethical to share versus how seamless can we make this for the user? And then kind of the other side of that, because like I said, there are a lot of benefits to the user if they do link their accounts and, you know, go through our personal financial guidance experience and understand their picture. I remember we were doing user research where we were talking to kind of the elder population, people who are a bit older. And they were like, yeah, we're using your product. We love it. We want to use your product, but we're not, we're not going to link external accounts because we don't know what that means. We don't get it. We don't trust it. You know, they didn't say it like that, but that's essentially what we learned right. is that they want to use our product without doing that. So then it's like, do you nudge them to, into doing that? And if you do, how do you do that ethically? Right. And again, we're seed round. So I, I do not have the answer for everything, but <laughs> you have to think about, you know, and try totally. to figure out over time as you iterate. So totally. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's super interesting. I'm also interested in your perspective from like the cryptocurrency side of things. If, you know, because I think there's a a really interesting play of using crypto, using wallets to, you know, essentially bank people and help people participate in, you know, the financial services that, Maybe you wouldn't be able to do so in the, in the traditional sense. Maybe you don't have a credit score. Maybe you don't have, you know, the proper documentation to set up a bank account. So I'd be interested to see from your perspective where you think the state of like crypto and UX come into play in all of the fintech discussion. I'll preface this by saying I'm not an expert in crypto. I obviously have my eye on blockchain technologies and all of that as part of our long-term vision. And I think there are a lot of benefits to it, but I think almost like what I just mentioned with open banking, it's something I would like to see happen, but with some regulation around it, because I've seen a lot of like bad stories. And I know if we went into a traditional bank and just implemented blockchain technology out of nowhere and the users knew that based on our user research with people, and these are like community banks, so maybe it's different at like Goldman Sachs, but they want to trust things before they use them. So it's something I have my eye on is something I would love to keep as a possibility, but I feel like I need to understand better 
like the security around that, because I know there have been a lot of like hacks in the news or like bad actors in the news and how we can maybe even build that our own for banks and implement that in a way that we feel that people will trust. Yeah. The worst case scenario is something goes wrong. And that would be okay if you're launching like an NFT, like, you know, whatever project that's a personal project. But if you are working with traditional banks and credit unions in their communities, you know, serving their people, and they've done this whole technological shift because that's the hot thing right now. And then something goes wrong, like that is absolutely detrimental to that community. So it's something that I see the benefits of and I'm keeping an eye on, but I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But I do know that everyone in this industry is starting to think about it and be more open about it and talk about it. And I'm going to keep learning about that over time. So, yeah, I think a really interesting experience I had recently is I was, I had to open a new bank account for a business. And I don't know if any of you have opened a bank account recently, but it is quite the process to open a bank account. Like I was having to answer all of these like sorts of questions that didn't really even seem related to the bank and like they're protecting them themselves. They have lots of like reasons and regulations and security that they, that has built in for the bank because like they're insured, they have all of these protections and things in place. And so there's a lot of like consumer protection when you go with a bank, if you're able to like get there and then crypto is like on the complete opposite flip side where you can literally establish a a bank for yourself a wallet and an address where someone can send you money and you know be up and running be be banked for for lack of a better term but like yeah you don't have those security measures in place you're not insured you're very like susceptible to scams that's completely new industry and It'll be very interesting probably over the next decade to see if UX can like level out yeah. you know, security, education, and everything to help bring up the level of understanding of these basically decentralized personal banks. And I do think it will go in that direction. I truly do over time. It's just in in certain industries, which is funny enough, like (laughs) the industries they're trying to tackle, there are a lot of things to take into consideration. And it's funny. So at my last job, we did government software, which did like tax collection, but also had to do with like deeds on houses and things like that. Yeah. And they actually someone in the company kind of convinced them (laughs) with this is a really cool story, convinced them how important it was to keep an eye on blockchain and eventually became the chief blockchain strategist since the first time that position existed. And they're just keeping like a long play eye on that and kind of figuring out how to implement that technology without jumping into it. Like, yeah. thinking, like really doing a risk analysis. And I think in our, and if we're working with community banks and credit unions, we probably are going to have to do the same thing. So that's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to chat about is like, obviously fintech is pretty male dominated, lots of, you know, bro culture, at least that's my perception of it. And so would be interested, you know, from your perspective, being a woman in fintech, what your experiences have been good or bad? Yeah, not even specific to fintech, but I would say in tech. Yeah, I think kind of an overarching experience that many women relate to that that I went through was just that it took me a really long time to figure out my place in the companies I worked at. 
and to eventually build that confidence and truly believe that my voice and my ideas and my skills were important. So I think I really had a lot of imposter syndrome for the first seven years that hindered progress in my career and definitely my earning potential in my 20s, which is a big deal to me because I, you know, obsessed with investing in personal finance and things. And I think a really big part of that at the beginning was just, you know, being new out of college, being inexperienced for those first one to three years. And I had a lot to learn and, and earn. But there are definitely broader systemic and cultural barriers that impact the careers of women in these industries and also other people who are underrepresented in these industries. So tech, banking, finance, and those were present. So I could I could dive into those in more detail if you wanted to, to kind of explain what that experience was like or even how it why I think it's important to think about in product design. So, yeah, absolutely. Please do. OK, so I think. I mean, the barriers are really multifaceted and sometimes really elusive. Like, so sometimes when you are a woman in these places, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on. But to give some like really broad examples, a lot of times when women join a company, all the C-suite executives are men. And that did happen to me in every single company I worked for before my current one, Sonata. And when I started my career, I don't remember noticing that at all. Like it was just so normalized and obvious. So it's hard to pinpoint how that subconsciously impacts you. But I think in retrospect, it's really difficult sometimes to dream big or make big career moves or have that confidence to take big risks when you don't see yourself represented in those top positions. So I know that it's really, really common for people who, or for women or maybe other underrepresented people who excelled in school and held leadership positions and high school and university and just you know, had really high hopes to not find that same success in the real world, or at least not right out the gate and kind of be more intentional about figuring that out over time. Sure. And then I've definitely been through experiences where as you start to reach, the, reach those positions, it's common for people to like not expect that. Like I've been in situations where I'm the interviewer or the top decision maker in the room and the candidate or potential partner or whoever it is just like doesn't acknowledge me or assume that I am or look at me or listen to me until they figure it out. Right. <laughs> or... I think another big thing in the tech industry that causes women to struggle sometimes is, especially with my generation, which is millennials and older generations, and maybe even, I don't know if it's improved over time or not, I haven't looked into it, but there's definitely a STEM gap. So science, technology, and engineering that starts in like really early childhood. It's a lot of research around that and how it impacts people, but it really limits access to and preparation for opportunities in these fields such as tech as adults. So I think that's one big reason we're a minority in the tech industry. And then if you are someone without a STEM background, so like me, I'm a social major. For me, it took a really long time to have that confidence to speak my ideas in front of a team of like all male devs, for example, and to realize that I had like a unique set of skills that were equally important to the business as technical skills are. And I actually think a lot of product people might relate to this regardless of their gender, especially if you were a liberal arts major, as I'm sure a lot of designers are, but just experiencing that imposter syndrome when the truth is there are super important soft skills like critical thinking, understanding people, understanding business, culture, communication, negotiation, vision, yep. like the research I talked about, qualitative and quantitative that can be really common in liberal arts that is really crucial to this career. And so... Those things are important. I'll say that now. But I have faced experiences where I was bringing those things to the table and not taking them seriously. And so 
it took me a really long time to figure out my voice and my confidence and learn how to navigate that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's really insightful. Going back to kind of your point of like interviewing and, you know, people being like surprised or not even knowing like you were potentially like trying to achieve whatever goal or interview that you were trying to achieve. I think that kind of points to people's like just biases about what they think is going to happen or the reality, like a really silly example of like when I went to go buy my last car, like not trying to one up your woman in tech story from a white guy buying a car, but a similar situation is I went and I was like later twenties. I drove up in like my rickety old, like Honda Civic and was like trying to get someone to talk to me because I knew what I wanted to like buy or lease at least. No one was giving me the time of day, like younger face, whatever. I was just getting the cold shoulder from everyone. Yeah. And then when I finally like got the guy to seriously start taking down some of my information and I'm like, I'm married, I have a kid and I run my own business and I'm, you know, like 29. And he just like, he put his head down on his desk and he's like, I am so sorry. It's like, well, maybe you should not assume things about me before I like... I mean, that's exactly the experience. It's just like having to feel like that in your career, you know? Right. And not, and again, not just for women. Maybe it, it's proud of people with liberal arts degrees. Maybe it's people of different races or different backgrounds, but women for sure, like, that is the experience. Um, yeah, it's not so, a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think, you know, part of just a way that we can help move the industry forward is just like having conversations like these where it just makes people aware of it. Right. So it's like (laughs) next time you have an interview with a person that you've maybe not interviewed before or haven't seen in that role, it's like maybe before you show your surprise, you consider like this could, this is a real possibility that this person could hold this position or want to hold this position. And I think just first step is awareness around that, that this is just like, a realistic possibility and we should be open and happy for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to bring this back to product design too, because I think it's more than just the right thing to do. Like I could give a lot of examples of why it's important in product design to have diverse thought on your teams. Yeah. If you want to go jump into that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it, it is really important to intentionally hire for diversity on your product and engineering teams, not just to like meet some quota or be a good person, but because I think there really are social and financial risks to not doing so. And this is a problem in the tech industry specifically because we struggle with diversity as an industry, as we all know. Yet every aspect of our world is being redesigned by technology right now. There are digital transformations basically in every industry that you could think of. So it's touching every part of our lives. So it really is important that these products are not designed, built, and tested all by like a homogeneous group of people. Because it's actually known, and there is research around this, that a lack of diverse thinking can result in products that don't meet the needs of their target users without people realizing it, or they could even have unintended bad consequences to users. So like a really basic example I like to give is that of the seatbelt. I'll give a more modern example after this, but I think it's a good illustration because the seatbelt was designed by a male engineer in the 40s. And it was tested for over 20 years by male engineers on male dummies. And the result was they eventually figured out that it was actually harmful to women and children. So this product that was really well intended and specifically designed to save lives was actually dangerous for like half the population using it. 
So I just love that illustration of the consequences of lacking those diverse perspectives in product design, test, like everything all the way to testing at all stages of the business on all, on all teams. So that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. And to bring that into like the more modern day example, and I can just, I can go back to Robinhood on this one, but not to pick on them because this is common in literally every company. But there's been research that's come out recently. Fidelity has published something on it. I've heard multiple podcasts on it from VCs and economists, but that having that diverse thinking on your teams actually has financial benefits. You're more likely to succeed as a company in that way. And so an example I can think of here is Robinhood's executive team came out recently and said that attracting more women and users was really key to its growth. But this was kind of like a toll task for them or any online brokerage that focuses on short-term stock trade. So we're actually in the fintech industry seeing this competitive race to secure the subset of the market, which is like half the market, in retrospect, even though women make up half the population. And how this happened was... These brokerages that are focused on short-term trading basically developed their products and predicated their entire business model on this when the reality is, and although that probably brought them success out the gate, women have very, very different investment behaviors. There's research on how women are more likely to look into long-term wealth building, index funds, long-term goals, and things like that. And so Robinhood has come out and specifically said that now they need to... (laughs) retrospectively try to figure that out and tap into that market and focus on that. And that's okay that that wasn't their first focus, but it's just a really good illustration. Yeah, That is like a massive business opportunity that all these brokerages missed because they were just focused on short-term trading. So, Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, amongst my, my wife and all my friends and their wives, it's like, all of the guys want to invest in crypto and all of the wives are like, no, absolutely not. Like, it's just like <laughs> people, you know, you're different. Like people are different. They have different goals and sensibilities and things like that. So to build a whole financial platform that's <laughs> built by and for, you know, one gender is probably only going to attract one exactly. gender as a minority. Yep. yep. Well, Kelsey, this has been a really insightful talk. Thank you so much for the time. Wanted to just leave one uh, last thought for you to share as we leave, if you have any. And again, thank you for the time. Yeah. Wow. Well, the two things, if you're looking to break into this industry, just don't be afraid to take risks. I think opportunities come when you least expect them. Like I said, I never got a product job by applying to a product job. It was through talking to people and connections. So try that and learning on your own. And then no matter who you are, if you want to be intentional about hiring for diversity on your product teams, please do so. I think you'll find a lot of benefits throughout the company. So I think that's very important. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Seth. That was really fun. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.